All right, hello everybody, and welcome to another edition of AM Live. I hope you can hear that. That was me attempting to do a little music interlude. I've always wanted to speak over some music, like a radio host, but oh yeah. You are tuned in live to AM Live, only on comments. But today we'll be talking about war, sanctions, misery, propaganda, all the fun stuff, you know? <laughs> so I hope that came through okay. And I hope you're having a good week. Happy Friday or happy Saturday if you're in a different uh, part of the world. Um, so a lot to talk about this week. The theme I was thinking about was um, just what a what a bad week it was for neocon uh, Russiagate related propaganda on many, many fronts. And so we'll get into it. And one thing I want to stress is that my aim for today is I don't want to talk too much because there's a lot of topics, but uh, just me speaking is, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's not my cup of tea. I'd rather talk to people and engage with you. So what I hope to do is go through the various topics that I have. But if any point you want to jump in and call, call in and say something, please do. And we'll take your call. And uh, whether it's related to the topics at hand or not, because we can always get back to the the issues that I had mapped out for the show. So if at any point you want to call in, please do, and we'll take your call, and we'll talk about what's on your mind. Uh, even you, Kusha, who I see already, who I, I know will be ready to debate me on something today, and of course, I welcome you doing that. That's that's the reason we do this, is because it's good to be able to engage with people, and that means also fielding criticism, and um, it's a great opportunity to do that, because I don't have one otherwise. So that includes you, Kusha. I know you're lined up with something already, so I look forward to hearing whatever you have to say today. Uh, so the theme I wanted to discuss this week was just, yeah, as I said, like it hasn't been a good week for propaganda. First of all, when it comes to the major geopolitical flashpoint, flashpoint right now of Ukraine, Biden <laughs> had a typical Biden moment where he blurted out the truth. And uh, it was so typical Biden. He's done this before most famously in Syria, when speaking to a Harvard audience when he was vice president, he blurted out that there basically were no moderate rebels in Syria, contrary to what his entire administration had been claiming. And he admitted that the U.S. had been, and it's al that the U.S. allies, um, and the U.S. tacitly, because the U.S. doesn't let its allies do anything without its support, that U.S. allies had been arming and funding al-Nusra in Syria, which is al-Qaeda. And Biden pointed out that they were the main recipients of the weapons that were going into Syria. And that wasn't good. I mean, it was right. But Biden had to go on an apology tour immediately around the world and apologize to Turkey, to Qatar and Saudi Arabia, not because he got anything wrong, but because he told the truth. And by the way, on that front, there's a new episode up of my show, Pushback at the Gray Zone, where I talked to Tim Anderson uh, author of The Dirty War in Syria. We're talking mostly about Syria, but that clip has, that episode has that Biden clip in there, among many other very telling statements from U.S. officials about the reality of the dirty war that I recommend if you haven't checked it out yet. And I'll link to it at the bottom of this episode. So Biden talking about Ukraine did a similar thing this week where he blurted out the truth. And he's talking about Putin and he said, I'm not, show, I'm not so uh, sure he is certain what he's going to do my guess is he will move in. He has to do something. And of course, Biden there is talking about Putin. And he says that Putin has to do something, which is such a funny 
statement from the president of the U.S. who is trying to stop Putin supposedly from invading Ukraine, although the prospects of that personally I don't really think are very high, which we can get into. Uh, and then Biden also said that basically if there was a, quote, minor incursion from Russian forces, that he basically strongly suggested that the U.S. wouldn't react strongly to that, or at least they shouldn't, certainly wouldn't react militarily, which was just another funny statement. And it reflects the complete reality that, yeah, the U.S. is not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. And the irony here is after encouraging Ukraine to ramp up confrontation with Russia, after encouraging Ukraine to basically ignore the, Min the Minsk Accords, which it reached to create peace in the Donbass region, now, after encouraging all that, the Biden administration is backing off and basically telling Ukraine that it's not going to have its back uh, if a military confrontation does break out. And that led to this new diplomatic sort of uh, uproar where Ukraine was upset. Uh, Anthony Blinken had to go on a damage control tour and assure people that the U.S. has its back. But the fact is that there's not going to be a major war there because, first of all, Russia would just win very easily. And it would be suicidal. It would be, it would be suicidal for everybody involved. And I think that includes Russia. I think the threats of a Russian invasion of Ukraine have been massively overhyped, uh, mostly for uh, a U.S. audience. Because, again, why would Russia, from its own point of view, why would they want to go in and conquer another country? They're already supporting a military campaign in the Donbass that's costing them a lot. If they wanted to ramp it up, they could do it, I think, from within their own borders, just with their um, with, with the weapons that they have. Although, of course, I'm not claiming to be a military expert, but it's just even from Russia's point of view to invade a hostile country, which is very dysfunctional and has um, a lot of problems. It just wouldn't make sense to me why Russia would even want to do that, even if they felt it would, you know, such an invasion could be possibly be in their interest or lead to a productive outcome. So. That was bad when Biden messed up on that and told the truth that that uh, he and by the way, in saying that Putin has to do something, that's kind of a tacit admission that Russia has legitimate concerns, because what are what are Russia's concerns here? Russia doesn't want to conquer Ukraine, but it does want to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO and Ukraine from hosting offensive weapons that could be used against Russia. Those are Russia's main demands. And what they've asked for from the U.S. is simply a written response. And for weeks, the U.S. has been dragging its feet in providing this written response. And today, Blinken said it might come next week. But even there, I must assure that it will. And the question I have about that is, like, if Russia is being so irrational and aggressive as the U.S. and its allies claim, why can't then the Biden administration give them a response in writing? If someone's being, you know, if someone's wrong and they're being irrational and their position is bad, the least you can do is put it on paper, write it down and tell them why they're not getting it right. So why is the U.S. dragged its feet on that? Well, I think it's because the U.S. isn't serious about Russia's core demands, or at least hasn't been so far, which is simply pledged to keep Ukraine out of NATO, which is a, you know, everybody involved thinks that's a, that Ukraine will not join anyway, because it would be crazy for a country on Russia's borders, another one to join a hostile military alliance that would require NATO to come to Ukraine self-defense in case a war broke out. So everyone kind of agrees with the principle anyway, but it's kind of just this U.S. hubris and this desire not to cater to anyone deemed as challenging U.S. hegemony that I think is stalling a real resolution here. And the question, I think, for the Biden administration is how long do they want to keep that up? How much, how much of a conflict do they want to prolong?
and uh, for all the damage that that's doing to everybody involved. Um, but uh, Biden, I think, told the truth that I don't think the U.S. has the stomach to really prolong this much longer, I hope at least. And uh, the fact that Blinken was meeting with Lavrov today is hopefully a sign of that. So, um, yeah, that was bad. And then, of course, it did not help when at the same time as all this is happening, the CIA admits that Havana syndrome, this idea that Russia or Cuba are using these microwave weapons to injure U.S. diplomats, that they found no evidence for that whatsoever. And we'll get more into that. But, you know, that was bad timing at a time when we're supposed to believe everything U.S. officials are telling us about Russia's plans, um, that they had to walk back the whole Havana syndrome thing, just like they do every single time there's a outlandish allegation against Russia, whether it's, you know, a conspiracy with Trump or whether it's, you remember, the Russian bounties in Afghanistan. Remember how that was for a summer of 2020? That was like the biggest deal on MSNBC. Vladimir Putin had personally put bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers and there was never any evidence for it. And all the evidence that came out undermined it. And then what happened? Biden took office and had to admit that, yes, uh, there's no evidence to this whatsoever. So they dropped that. And now the CIA is also dropping this Havana syndrome thing, but not after a lot of embarrassment for all those involved, especially, I would say, the journalists who pushed this credulously, just like they did with Russiagate, which brings me to another, I think, uh, embarrassment for Russiagate pushers, although this one is, for me to call this an embarrassment for them is self-serving because I'm the one who put it out. But basically... I have a new article out at Real Clear Investigations just looking at this new talking point that we're getting because in recent months, the Steele dossier has totally collapsed. Nobody takes that seriously anymore. So now the new line is, all right, fine. Okay, Steele, all right, he was a fraud. We get it. But just because he was a fraud, it doesn't mean that Russiagate is untainted because Russiagate cheerleaders say the FBI did not really make much use of the Steele dossier and certainly the Steele dossier did not impact the opening of the FBI's Trump-Russia probe. So what's the big deal if Steele is discredited? And what my article goes through, just using the available public record, is ample evidence that in the weeks before the FBI opened up its Trump-Russia probe in 2016, a lot of FBI people and State Department people were talking about the Steele dossier. Uh, Steele spoke to his FBI handler, a guy named Mike Gaeta, in early July. And told him, I need to tell you this. I have evidence of a uh, Trump-Russia conspiracy. And this FBI agent, Mike Gaeta, who was serving in Rome, he said, okay, I'm catching the next plane. And he rushed to London. And on July 5th, he met with Steele and Steele gave him a copy of his first so-called intelligence report. So according to the official FBI story, we're supposed to believe that despite the fact that Steele gave his first entry of the dossier to, an, who is, to his FBI handler in early July, we're supposed to believe that this had no impact on the FBI's decision to open up the Trump-Russia probe later on that month, on July 31st. And in fact, the FBI officials who opened up the Trump-Russia probe, this is a, the official FBI story, only heard about the dossier on September 19th, nearly two months after they opened it. And meanwhile, back in July, before the official opening date of Crossfire Hurricane, the Trump-Russia investigation, it wasn't just Mike Gaeta who was meeting with Steele and talking to him. It was Mike Gaeta's colleagues because Gaeta Im immediately passed what he got from Steele to his colleagues in New York. And at the office, by the way, where none other than Andrew McCabe used to work. And Andrew McCabe was the top FBI executive who signed off on the opening of the Trump-Russia investigation a few weeks later. And we're supposed to believe that none of these people 
told anyone involved with the with uh, opening up the Trump Russia investigation about what Steele was saying. And that is all the more implausible when you look at what the FBI claims it based the Russia investigation on. And they say it had nothing to do with Steele, but really this tip about George Papadopoulos, which is like the most vague tip in history. What it said was that Papadopoulos had told someone that he had gotten, sorry, Papadopoulos suggested, quote, I'm quoting, suggested that he had gotten a suggestion that Russia could somehow help the Trump campaign, but didn't specify anything about what that possible help meant. So basically the FBI official story, their origin story, is that they opened up the Trump-Russia probe, this sprawling, massively consequential investigation based on a low-level Trump volunteer having suggested a suggestion that contained zero specifics. It makes no sense, and it makes no sense that all these FBI people getting the Steele dossier and talking about the Steele dossier before the FBI officially opened up the Trump-Russia probe, it makes no sense that that also had nothing to do with the Trump-Russia probe opening. So that's what my article shows. It's very detailed, and I'll put a link to it below after this um, And uh, if, if you want to read it. And, uh, you know, peop- things have been quiet on that for, on the Russiagate front recently. And that's good, because who wants to hear about Russiagate? But um, just remember that this was the issue that dominated U.S. politics for so long. And the question of the FBI abusing the intelligence services and lying to the public about it is very important. And even though the target officially was Trump, the consequences were more far-reaching than that, including, by the way, setting the stage for this current crisis in Ukraine, because part of the reason why Trump was targeted, I think, and this is admitted by the FBI officials involved, is because he was talking publicly about getting along with Russia, and he was questioning NATO and spending so much money on NATO. And to national security state officials in Washington, I don't think they cared about Trump being a racist or a sexist or Trump saying crazy things. But they did care about Trump, you know, challenging one of the uh, guiding uh, imperatives of the national security state, which is having tensions with Russia and then profiting off of all the military spending that that results to. Um, And if you look at the FBI officials who opened up the Trump Russia probe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, you look at what they were texting each other. And Peter Strzok was saying, like, fuck the motherfucking savage Russians, like. They sound like psychos and Russophobes. And I think that was a heavy component of Russiagate. And that set the stage for what we're seeing today because that kind of Cold War attitude uh, framed as being the way to resist Trump has, I think, helped normalize this current Russophobic posture that we're seeing today towards Russia and I think is still helping to undermine calls for peace with Russia and negotiations with Russia. So the consequences of Russia go far beyond just you know the media being embarrassed and Trump being... Um, caught up with targeted with this it's it's geopolitical and um i'll have more on that soon i'm trying to write an article actually about that right now so uh then there's also um some new stories about syria the new york times has another great expose out revealing that back in 2017 the u.s was accused of bombing syria's largest dam the takva dam and it led to major damage and workers had to work very, very hard to repair it. And actually the workers, according to this story, came from the Syrian government, came from U.S. allies, and even from the Islamic State. So basically all these different warring parties paused the fighting in that region to repair the damage from this U.S. airstrike. At the time, the U.S. dismissed the allegation that it had bombed the dam as, quote, crazy reporting. But it turns out now 
that they were lying, that the U.S. had, in fact, bombed the dam. Uh, two former senior officials confirmed this to the Times. And what the story also reports, and this is just like compounds a tragedy, that after some Syrian workers rushed to repair this dam, they were bombed. They did their work and then they left and they drove away and a U.S. drone bombed them, killed three people who were involved in repairing a dam that the U.S. had bombed. And, you know, this raises just the obvious question. If the U.S. is lying about this, about bombing a dam, a major act like that, what else are they lying about? And that's a very relevant you know, question for me. If you follow my work, you know I've been spending so much time on the OPCW scandal, where in April 2018, the U.S. bombed Syria, claimed that it had committed a chemical attack in the town of Douma. A year later, the OPCW, the world's top chemical weapons watchdog, basically backed up the U.S. line that Syria was guilty of a chemical attack, which was the pretext for the U.S. bombing. But then we got these whistleblowers from the OPCW who challenged a cover-up of their own investigation of that incident. And their investigation found that there was no evidence of a chemical attack and ample evidence that this was staged by the insurgents on the ground. That's what the that's what their evidence pointed to, at least. So that was covered up. And of course, um, you know, you've, if you've heard me talk about this before, it's been very difficult to get mainstream coverage of this. For example, the Times, which is doing such great reporting on this, on these airstrikes now, they've only mentioned the whistleblowers once and in passing at the bottom of an article on a different topic. And they dismissed the OPCW leaks, this trove of documents that show the cover-up. They dismissed it as one email from an investigator. It wasn't one email. It's a lot of emails and a lot of uh, documents, including two different reports that were uh, that were written but not published. The first one was the team's original report, the one that found no evidence of a chemical attack. And the second document, which is just as crazy, is a document that some senior OPCW officials tried to rush out in place of the original report. And that report had all these ins insane claims inserted, claiming that there was evidence of a chemical attack when there wasn't. And that report was thwarted because of a protest by the original team, uh, the people who wrote the original report. But it's just amazing that none of this has gotten reported in the U.S. media, including in the Times. There's another angle to this that is very interesting. And it's funny that even when the Times gets a story right, you know, you always have to think about, well, is there anything that they're not getting right here? Is there any part of the story that where they're still actually um, perpetuating the official pro propaganda, even as they debunk parts of it? And according to Tim Anderson, who is a scholar and author, wrote a book called The Dirty War on Syria. He's based in Sydney, Australia. I just interviewed him for pushback. He says the Times is getting a major part of the story wrong. And what he argues is that the Times accepts the uh, Pentagon's underlying premise that the U.S. was fighting ISIS when it bombed all these people, when it bombed the dam in Syria and when it killed about 70 civilians in another incident that the Times recently exposed. That was in a place called Baguz, and that was in March 2019. The Times, before this story about the dam, had another major expose about the U.S. killing dozens of civilians in uh, on the outskirts of al-Baguz. And in both these places, the Times says that the U.S. was fighting ISIS. And what Tim Anderson says is he doesn't buy it that actually under the guise of fighting ISIS, the U.S. was actually fighting the Syrian army and bombing them. And he points to a, a pattern of the U.S. bombing the Syrian army 
at times when the Syrian army is fighting ISIS. Now, it is already established that the main parties engaging ISIS in military conflict was the Syrian army. Uh, that was acknowledged by Jane's Defense Weekly, a prominent uh, military publication. And in the town of, uh, or not in the town, in, in the province of, of Deir ez in 2016, there was this very famous incident where basically Obama, after a very, you know, after a long time of basically backing al-Nusra and other sectarian death squads in Syria, he made an agreement at the end of his administration with Russia uh, in September 2016 to fight al-Nusra because everyone knows that no matter how many times they change their name, al-Nusra was al-Qaeda. So Obama finally agreed to join up with Russia and fight al-Nusra because previously, as Jake Sullivan said in that infamous January 2012 email to Hillary Clinton, the U.S. position was, quote, al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria, okay? That's what Jake Sullivan, who's now the national security advisor, wrote to Hillary Clinton back in January 2012. But in September 2016, Obama made a deal to shift course and agreed to fight al-Nusra with Russia. Well, days later, just five days after that deal was signed, the U.S. military, in what they called an accident, they bombed, they wiped out a Syrian army position uh, near uh, Deir Azor. And that led to ISIS immediately capitalizing and ISIS seizing territory. And so what people like Tim Anderson say is that that wasn't an accident by the U.S. That was a deliberate attempt because the U.S. was so committed to regime change to basically undermine its own president at that point, undermine President Obama, and bomb the Syrian army, even if it meant leading to an advance for ISIS. And so what Tim Anderson is saying in that in the case of this dam, in the case of al-Baghuz in March 2019, the U.S. was not fighting ISIS. Actually, they were actually bombing Syrian army positions. And I haven't looked into that closely, so I don't want to endorse his claims. But I do want to just say that that's what he is saying. And there is a record of them doing that in 2016 in Deir ez-Zor. So it's at least worth thinking about. And it's always just worth being skeptical of every claim in a you know mainstream story, even when on the surface, and even when it actually is challenging a component of U.S. propaganda, as the Times has done here, and doing really important reporting in exposing these massacres. And you know, finally, if we're talking about massacres, I should mention what's happening in Yemen right now, which, you know, it's like um, when you talk about the U.S. and Russia having a standoff in Ukraine and a bid to avoid war, I mean, the premise is so ridiculous because there shouldn't be a standoff to begin with. If the U.S. had not expanded NATO after the end of the Cold War right up to Russia's borders, if the U.S. hadn't backed a coup in Ukraine in 2014 and uh, set off the current crisis, that I think is the major background to what's going on now, then you wouldn't have a crisis. You wouldn't have even this threat of war to talk about. So it's like the, the this talk, this the fact that the story is these two parties negotiating to avert war, it's true, but it sort of like overshadows the fact that I think one of the parties, the U.S., has a major role in bringing the situation to its current state in the first place. And if the U.S. just minded its own business and didn't care about what's happening in Ukraine or Russia, which is not a U.S. state, contrary to what you know, Mitt Romney or Adam Schiff believe. I mean, Adam Schiff, if you remember, if you remember during impeachment, he was saying the U.S. aids Ukraine so that we fight the Russians over there and not over here. So this idea that 
if the U.S. wasn't sending millions of dollars to weapons contractors and companies to uh, send weapons to Ukraine, that Russia would be invading the U.S.? I don't know where, via Alaska or California or I don't know, New York. Like, where are they going to come in? It's so ridiculous. But anyway, as there's this talk of this possible war to be avoided, there's an actual war going on right now. The U.S. is heavily involved in and it could end immediately if the U.S. simply stopped doing it. And that's Yemen. And that's a war that the uh, Obama-Biden administration gave a green light to and Saudi Arabia asked for it back in 2014. And now the latest atrocity is um, in the port city of Hodeidah, where uh, the Saudi coalition has killed something like 70 people, uh, including children who are playing soccer. And this comes as they've also bombed telecommunications infrastructure and knocked out Internet to large parts of the country. So. That's an area where if the U.S. cared about ending conflict or the U.S. could end it immediately by simply withdrawing support for the Saudi-backed coalition. And look, this is where I have to call out chumps like myself, because when during the Biden-Trump campaign, when I was advocating for a Biden vote to defeat Trump because I just thought that a Biden administration has the potential to do less damage to the U.S. and to the world than Trump. One of the areas I cited was was Yemen, because Biden was talking about ending support for the Saudi war in Yemen. What did Biden do when he came into office? He said he was scaling back support, but he just simply changed the terms. He said, we're, we're ending uh, support for offensive operations in Yemen. And he just said, we're only supporting defensive operations by Saudi Arabia in Yemen. So basically, that was a, a semantic way to continue the exact same uh support for the U.S. for Saudi and Yemen, but just calling it defensive. It's such a stupid scam. It's classic Democrats. I regret that I fell for it during the campaign. And we see it now. I mean, there just was this measure in Congress pushing through a $650 million weapons package for the Saudis. And uh, the administration defended it, said that it was for defensive weapons and allowed it to go through. And uh, now the mass murder campaign in Yemen continues. And even it's so horrible that the Biden administration is considering reversing one of the only positive things you can say it's done in Yemen, where upon taking office, they did reverse this designation of the Houthis as a terrorist group, Uh, because that designation, whatever you think of it, what it meant was that for areas under Houthi control, which is a large part of Yemen, it meant that aid could not reach there uh, because the people delivering the aid would be sanctioned and it just the aid could not be delivered. So Biden, to his credit, I guess, because it's, you know, uh, because he didn't want to kill even more people, I suppose, uh, reversed that. But now the Biden administration is talking about redoing the Trump decision. So basically undermining its own decision and redesignating the Houthis as a terror group, which would cut off aid to even more people in Yemen. And uh, according to Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute, Biden has condemned the Houthis for their military actions 13 times since taking office. He's condemned Saudi Arabia zero times for their far more murderous actions, including from the air, because the Houthis don't have air power. So zero condemnations for Saudi Arabia, but 13 condemnations from Biden for the Houthis. And of course, that makes sense because if Biden were to condemn Saudi Arabia's mass murder, he'd be condemning himself because he's the one arming and supporting it and giving it diplomatic cover. So 
it's just so sick. And um, I'm sorry that I, I fell for that. Um, it's, uh, it's embarrassing. And it just speaks to how awful these Democrats are. And we have my friend Kusha as our first caller coming to save the day. And I know coming to criticize me as well, but that's much more welcome than me talking. So Kusha, I invite you in and uh, just remember to unmute yourself when you come in to speak. Hello, Aaron. Are you able to hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Thank you. And I really appreciate that introduction of me you just did now and at the very beginning of the episode. In fact, I wanted to begin with the point you just made about the Biden administration and admit and resonate with you that I was also duped. I remember I even shared on my Instagram story when that New York Times article came out about how Biden was going to essentially stop the support for the mass murder campaign of precious and poor people in Yemen, uh, largely children, uh, of course, starving with this uh, series, with these series of sanctions and the blockade and so on. And of course, as we saw when the weapons deal was forced through, as you just said, with the semantics of calling them defensive weapons, and there was a minority, I think it was in the Senate, in which Bernie and two Republicans, Mike Lee and Rand Paul, worked together for it. Um, as you said, he was uncomfortable in that alliance and some other in the Democratic Party, but it, it was uh, not stopped. So I want to begin by saying I very much resonate with, uh, you know, just the shameful duplicity that was played. And I thought, oh, you know, you know, I condemned him from the beginning. I didn't even vote for him. And I didn't vote for the Republicans. I went for the Green Party. But, you know, the point being that I can very much, you know, and I had no hopes for him to begin with, with his policy and how he treat uh, poor people around the world, working people around the world, and including those in the United States. But yes, I, just to begin with, I would like to say that I very much stand in the same position you were with that awful mistake, though I didn't have any optimism whatsoever. It just seemed like, okay, maybe he's not going to support some more mass murder. Yeah, well, I feel like a chump for taking what he was saying seriously and also taking seriously when he, they were talking about returning to the Iran nuclear deal. That was the other big reason I was like, advocating uh, a vote to defeat Trump is because under Biden, I thought there was a legit prospect that the, the, the nuclear deal would be restored, but that hasn't happened either. They could have, you know, gone back to that on day one, but they haven't, they've dragged their feet. They've defended the Trump sanctions. They've, um, you know, even uh, Biden was even criticizing Trump sanctions because of COVID and saying that that's a reason to lift them alone, but he didn't, he kept all of them. And he's, and he's, and now when Iran is asking for those, sanctions to be those Trump sanctions, those new sanctions to be lifted. Biden is trying to defend them, saying that they're unrelated to the Iran nuclear deal. So it's just uh, it's it's really I mean, it never ceases to. I shouldn't be surprised by the level of cynicism from these people, but yet I am. Of course, it's very predictable, as you say. But, you know, it's like if you knew that someone like uh, Floyd Mayweather or Mike Tyson was going to punch you in the face and they told you it's still going to sting and hurt you so much, after, <laughs> even if you know it's coming, friends, even if you That's know, true. we know it's going to come from Biden. And so, of course, I condemn the sanctions fully that uh, Trump put on and, and, and exacerbated. And, of course, Biden's maintaining, of course, playing a game of political leverage and um if I may, one of the things that you were touching upon was uh, some of the deception carried out by the intelligence community uh, in the description, of course, it's with the Havana syndrome that was just exposed. I think was it MSNBC put out the article recently that many people were sharing. 
as well as you were talking about that Russian bounty story, correct? Um, yeah. I think you, I saw, I learned about it from you, I believe. And it was because I heard one of my uncles talking about it some when the story first broke out. And then when I saw you speak on it and push it and help me learn about it, I was so grateful because, of course, there's so many deceptions in this. And I'm, it's for me, what's so crucial is getting to the truth, no matter how uncomfortable or inconvenient it may be for whatever um, you know, is the predominant prevailing voice. Yeah, well, the Afghan bounty story was so funny because there was no evidence for it from the start. It was based on some CIA people taking advantage of dupes in the media, namely Charlie Savage, who I once thought was a, you know, um, impressive reporter. He did some good stuff on the NSA program abuses and spying on Americans, but he since become a complete, he became a Russia gate dupe and then, a, and then a dupe for the uh, Russian bounty story in Afghanistan. It was obvious from the start, the evidence wasn't there. It kept collapsing the times because they were used as the vehicle to launder the story. They couldn't admit their error. So they would, you know, they just kept doubling down on it. And of course, MSNBC all summer of 2020, was just nonstop Russian bounties. How could Trump let this happen? Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell was playing like he did these segments where he would talk about dead U.S. soldiers and he would speculate that Putin had, had basically was personally responsible for their murder. And then Biden comes in and Biden actually decided that they don't want to pursue the same crazy policies when it comes to Russia that Trump was pursuing. Because remember, while everybody was calling Trump a Russian puppet, including on MSNBC, Trump was actually pursuing the most hawkish Russia policy. We've seen in many years more hot than even arming Obama. Ukraine, yeah. arming, uh, arming Ukraine. Syria, uh, choking Venezuela with sanctions, having a coup d'état in Bolivia. I know all the work you put out, Aaron. Pulling out, pulling out of vital nuclear treaties, which Biden immediately returned to. So, but what the if gas Biden, pipeline? Yes, yeah, everything, that. everything. So, you know, so when so Biden came out, Biden came in. So finally, there was some room for a little more sanity, and they admitted that the Russian bounty story was just not true. And of course. Uh, did anybody express any kind of remorse for pushing a propaganda disinformation campaign, a very dangerous one that actually helped delay the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? I mean, how many more people may have died, actually, because of that stupid Russian bounty story? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, mm -hmm. there were efforts at, at drawing down and the Russian bounties thing was used to, to throw that into disarray. And actually, let me actually plug an interview I recently did. Hopefully you all saw it because I thought it was really good. It's with Doug, and he is a uh, former U.S. Army colonel, served as a senior advisor to the Pentagon in the last month of the Trump administration. Basically, Trump, after like four years of appointing neocons and anyone who Sheldon Adelson wanted, in the last months he finally got in someone who kind of reflects the rhetoric he had back in 2016 when he was critical of U.S. interventions, and he appointed Doug McGregor to the Pentagon to help draw down uh, the U.S. in Afghanistan. But this whole Russian bounties thing helped slow that down. And of course, when neocons in Washington and the Pentagon revolted against Trump's plans, Trump immediately backed down like he always did. And McGregor has a lot of really interesting insights about that. One of the things he says is that Trump just really wanted to be liked. <laughs> he didn't want confrontation. And so mm -hmm. he backed down immediately, which like, you know, I, I think uh, makes a lot of sense. So that was on pushback a few weeks ago that I recommend for people that they watch if they haven't seen it yet. Very nice. And I'll be looking into that one. It, uh, maybe I've seen some snippets from it, but otherwise I definitely will be making a more concerted effort. And I just want to kind of tie a little bit back to what we were talking about with the last conversation, 
uh, especially given the history of the FBI slash CIA slash U.S. intelligence agencies slash State Department with their uh, documented history of murder, deception, assassination, surveillance, silencing, coups, you name it. And one of the things that we talked about last time, which I began with on episode six of your program uh, on call-in, was um, that Martin Luther King Day was very recent and got a day off work, uh, like I'm sure many people did, and how the FBI, one U.S. intelligence agency, um, sent him an anonymous letter in the 1960s, I believe in 64 to be exact, and in that letter, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they were so aggressive and so vicious to him, calling him a fraud in there multiple times, likening him to a beast, an imbecile, evil. And then so many people, so many employers, so many large companies use his legacy so endearingly. I think even the intelligence agencies probably do speak on him so lovingly. And essentially what's in that letter is it said that there's only one thing left for MLK to do and that he knows what it is. And from King's understanding, it was essentially a threat persuading him, urging him to carry out, to commit suicide. And um, so that's just one of the many, both domestic and international uh, disgraces from the intelligence agencies. And now that's exactly what, that's exactly what happened. And, and remember why it happened is because King at that point, he wasn't just talking about civil rights. Uh, and he, mm-hmm. you know, had he also was mm-hmm. uh, talking about war and economic mm-hmm. uh, inequality. And he he was, you know, but just but of course, just just for standing up for civil rights, that was that made him a target enough. And yes, you're exactly right. The FBI tried to basically convince, tried to pressure him to kill himself and tried to blackmail him because they had tapes of his extramarital affairs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And as you said in our last conversation on episode six. Um, I think this may have been before then, the Vietnam War, when he started getting involved. I think he got involved a little, like a year or two or, or even three after this letter came to him. And I know that one of the pictures he had seen, I think it was of the young girl burning on fire. That yeah. really uh, was uh, an influence, uh, a stim- uh, something that changed his course of action and being much more um, emphatic about it. And I think his friendship with uh, Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Turi, Mm -hmm. Uh, was a big factor in that and as you said Mm -hmm. the last time towards the very end like 67 68 because i think he was killed in 68 yes uh he started talking about the sanitation workers and organizing them as well um and why i want to mention king in connection to the intelligence agencies is to make a, a further connection to again what you were talking about on our last conversation on episode six and i want to share with you what martin luther king said exactly when it came to a silence, uh, especially as it pertains to one's friends, given the contents of our discussions on Syria and Iran. And so what Martin Luther King said, and this is a tweet that was put out by the Martin Luther King Jr. Center on May 29th of 2020. And there are three quotes that the King Center shared in that post. The first is, quote, there comes a time when silence is betrayal, end quote. The second is that our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, end quote. And the third, and I think perhaps the most important of the three that was po- that were posted that day, is that, quote, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends, end quote. And now, why am I even mentioning those three quotes about silence and friends and whatnot? Because what you mentioned in your previous discussion with me is that uh, when I was critiquing uh, Bashar al-Assad and his murderous Syrian government, 
when I was critiquing the Islamic Republic, and you made statements that, okay, I'm not the United Nations, and it's not my job to uh, condemn every government or to endorse every government, but you said in a matter of self-defense and self-preservation to show that you have empathy for those who are suffering, you said that I have friends who are Iranian leftists and they suffered. I have friends who are Syrians and they suffered under Assad. Perhaps you, I think you said they were tortured, for instance. And I just want to know and put that together, how, what type of friendship that is. If you have friends who are suffering under a despot, under a tyrant, and uh, you choose in their moment of suffering to uh, not speak up when you have the opportunity, when the situation arises. Not like, of course, you made a good point, a very reasonable point about what is your primary concern. And I, I you know, I, that is sensible to me because when you talked about, you know, Kusha, like my primary concern is the actions of my government. Uh, you said this in episode six, quote, um, and at the one hour, 16 minute, 58 second mark, quote, my own primary concern is my own government. To me, ultimately, it's not really my business what Iran does to its people. That doesn't mean I can't condemn it, but it's certainly not anywhere near my primary concern, especially at a time when my own government is subjecting places like Syria and Iran to so much suffering with Iran via the sanctions and Syria via the dirty war. And the Amen. I say I say amen to my own statement there. I, yeah. I do. So that, I do okay, no, no, so yeah. If I may just. Uh, yes, go ahead. I, go ahead. I, I yeah. really want to give you the opportunity to respond, and I yeah. gave a lot. I want to make sure when you're responding, you hit those points to the best of your abilities. But I understand what you mean by primary concern. That's I mean, any journalist has that. Jordan Sheraton's primary concern is like labor movements or Flint, Michigan inside the United States. Uh, Kim Kelly is that way for labor movements in the United States. Uh, every journalist can have their own beat. That's very reasonable. Uh, with Greenwald, it's largely been with the Snowden reporting and uh, exonerating Lula. This is a sensible position as a journalist. I'm not saying anything about you having a primary concern or a beat or anything of that nature. That's, that's legitimate. Right. Um, but I think what is important to me is that it may be that the United States and its allies, the British government, French government, uh, German government, Spain, so on, they're your primary concern. However, on the occasions... And in the moments, which they do occur, I've seen it from your work, that your concern happens or that your attention happens to be directed to governments that have been or currently are enemies of the United States, your heart and stance should follow the position of dignity, decency, and justice and humanity for those people. And I'd like to hear your response. I, I gave a lot, so I want you to respond um, to the best of your abilities. I, I got you. I, I agree with what you're saying. Just because I'm critical of what the U.S. and their allies are doing to Iran and Syria doesn't mean I should ignore the victims of the Iranian and Syrian governments. It's totally fair. Um, and I don't. And I never have. What I said, though, well, first of all, when it comes to Syria, there's a particular nuance. And I, I'm sorry to use the term nuance because I hate it because it's always used by... Being the, thorough. The, the thoroughness thing. is important. But, but, but in Syria, there, there is a nuance, whereas I did say, I'm not going to, like, there's this, there's this uh, very cu common current where Assad is basically held responsible and demonized for atrocities and crimes he commits in a war he didn't start. He didn't want to fight a dirty war in his borders. There are no Syrians who voted for the governments of 
the U.S., the U.K., uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, to flood their country with billions of dollars worth of weapons and in support of sectarian death squads, many of whom aren't even Syrian, but came around the world. And so when Assad and his government, and it's not, it's not even Assad, it's his government and his army, an army, by the way, of, you know, of, of all different kinds of people. So it's not even the sectarian conflict the way it's portrayed. I'm not going to condemn them for atrocities that they commit in the act of that because they're defending their country. And it's like if anybody uh, armed al-Qaeda in my neighborhood and my government responded with the limited weapons that it has, because, again, Syria is a global south country. They don't even have the precision weapons that the U.S. has. And if my government committed some atrocities in the process of defending my neighborhood, my country from being taken over by al-Qaeda, I'm not going to denounce my government for uh, atrocities committed. It just doesn't make sense. It's completely hypocritical. My concern there mm. is, you know, what I'm doing and feeling the war. But that doesn't mean that I turn a blind eye to the Syrians who have suffered under Assad, who have been tortured, who have been criminalized, who have been chased out of the country for being dissidents. I mean, a, a good friend of mine is Iranian, and their family had to leave because they were leftists uh, in the 1980s. Not because, I mean, there also was the uh, Iran-Iraq war, and that was that was dangerous. And of course, the U.S. was supporting Saddam in that. But uh, no, but they, but they left because because they were leftists and they were scared. And um, so I know people have suffered, but it's just as I've tried to, as we talked about before, for me, it's not my top concern. And it feels hypocritical to any way try to draw an equivalency between these crimes, because to me, with the crimes that the U.S. and its allies do to these countries is far greater than what these countries do internally. Um, and listen, Kusha, here's what I'm asking. If you want to say more, because we've already gone on a long time and because we went on last time, I'm going to ask you just to um, pause for now. I'm going to let the other callers in. If you want to say more, you can come back after them and, and we can pick this up then because I want to give other people a chance to speak. OK. That I can gladly and um, absolutely do. And I really appreciate that. And of course, it's fair to let other people have the opportunity to enjoy your dialogue for sure. OK, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, Tim, you are next, and a reminder to unmute yourself when you come in. So, Tim, you want to hit the, the microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. Nope, we lost Tim. Okay. Craig, a very cute puppy, you are next, and uh, a reminder that to unmute yourself when you come in it's the it's in the bottom right of your screen aaron how are you doing hi craig i'm good how are you good doing well thank you very much for having us tonight I, it's my first time listening to you been reading you for a long time so i do appreciate your your perspective on things um the one thing i wanted to ask you about about is uh the durham report because that's really not getting any air elsewhere in the media mm -hmm. and i i i suspect that well i won't i won't get any it doesn't matter what i think what i want to hear from you is what do you expect to happen from here forward like how much longer is left before a report actually comes out what other um what other route does his his uh strategy seem to be taking to you who else do you think might be seeing a, a, a subpoena or conviction or whatever? I'm not even sure what he's legally allowed to do. So I'm just curious to hear you speak more about the Durham report. I'll take the, the, I'll take the answer offline, okay? Okay, okay. Thanks, Craig. 
the uh, the problem is the problem is it's just there's no information coming out and i mean i have people calling me all the time and telling me stuff and people who have told me accurate stuff before who they are they have they have sources who are familiar with what's going on but some of what i've heard has turned out to be accurate and some of it what i've heard has turned out to be totally just off base so that's why i don't really i mean and because i can't confirm any of this stuff i just don't repeat it so I mean, the best I can tell you is that I've heard all kinds of predictions and I've heard all these different channels where Durham is exploring, but I just, it would be irresponsible to, to repeat it. Um, I, uh, what I, that's fair by the way. Yeah. I mean, sure. I, I respect I, that. It's just gets fair. Yeah. 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 I can tell you what I hope. What I hope is that Durham is not just looking at how the collusion aspect of this was generated because by now that's pretty obvious. It was like, a Clinton-funded operation using steel. As my new article explains, and I, I hope you have the chance to check it out, the idea that steel had no influence over the FBI's decision to open up the probe is just so ridiculous because there were all these FBI officials who knew about the steel dossier, who eagerly received the steel dossier and discussed the steel dossier and discussed sending it up the FBI chain before the probe was officially opened up. And the official pretext for opening up the probe george papadopoulos the tip about him just makes no sense at all so uh, i do if i were to predict i do think durham is going to confirm that basically confirm what i just wrote up at real clear investigations and i'll link to that article below for people who haven't read it um now that's a self-serving prediction because i'm basically saying that i'm going to be vindicated but you know i think <laughs> i've earned the right i think i've earned the right i think i've earned the right to do that by now when it comes to russiagate at least but so that's I do think he will basically, if I if I were to predict, I would say I do think he will challenge the FBI's uh, origin story for how the Trump-Russia probe began and claiming that it was about Papadopoulos and claiming it had nothing to do with steel. If I had to bet, Durham will challenge that in some way. He's already hinted that he'll do that, although he, you know, because he said he didn't, when Horowitz, the DOJ inspector general, put out a report saying that the uh, FBI probe was properly predicated and that it had nothing to do with steel. Durham sort of said he dissented, but he didn't specify what he meant by that. And that could mean a very actual minor thing. Like he, it might not even be what, it might not even be that he disagrees with Horowitz on the main conclusions. So I don't know what he meant, but he's hinted that he has some kind of disagreement when it comes to predication. So what I'm, what I'm predicting is that he will go after that. But what I'm hoping is that he doesn't just go after the conspiracy thing, but he also goes after the issue of, who stole the emails? Because we've been told that Russia waged this massive interference campaign to divide America. We know that one component of that, the social media component, is a complete scam. Uh, the idea that this troll farm, A, put out anything that could influence anybody is a joke. And B, it doesn't even it's confirmed that it doesn't even have anything to do with the Kremlin. They're a private troll farm with ties to the Kremlin, but the idea that they were directed by the Kremlin, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. So that part has collapsed. Mueller even dropped the case he brought against the firm he indicted for these social media ads. And then there's the emails. Like, this is the only real question, because that's the only thing of real significance when it comes to these Russiagate allegations. Like, did Russia steal the emails? All the proof we've seen of that, to me, undermines the allegation. I've written about that extensively. Most famously, there's CrowdStrike, which generated the Russian hacking allegation. And by the way, like Christopher Steele, they're working for the Clinton campaign. Um, CrowdStrike admitted under oath that they had no evidence of 
these Russian hackers, alleged Russian hackers actually stealing anything. So uh, people call me and tell me that Durham is looking at that, but uh, I can't confirm that. When I, I try, you know, when, when I wrote CrowdStrike and said, has Durham approached you? They said no. So I have to go by that. And what I'm hoping, if Durham wants to get to the real story, is get into the role of CrowdStrike and get into, look at the, show us the evidence for who stole the emails. Maybe it was Russia. Some people who've seen the evidence, uh, who are sources of mine, actually said the evidence was convincing that it was Russia. I personally don't buy it, but regardless, I'd love to see it. And hopefully Durham will give us a chance because so far it's basically just been, Let's take. We've been told to take the word of U.S. intelligence, and how dare we question them? Well, look at the track record of that. Look how often things they tell us, including about RussiaGate, fall apart. So I hope Durham goes there. And timeline-wise, I'm going to predict he wraps up by the midterms because he's been going since May 2019. That's a long time. That's more than two years. And I don't see how he can drag this out much longer. And uh, my so my my prediction is before the midterm. So that's that's the best I can do for you. Thanks, Aaron. Keep banging the drum. You're doing a good job. I love it. Thank, thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Tim, you are next. And when you come in, just hit the um, unmute button at the bottom right of your screen. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Tim. Can you hear me? Or? I can hear okay. you. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Um, so, uh, I wanted to actually, the reason I was calling in, I wanted to bring up something about Ukraine and um, Russia that I don't think is very well covered and is actually kind of terrifying, even mm -hmm. though the, the whole issue is kind of, uh, has me a nervous wreck. But what Kusha was saying was really interesting, and it, it also brought up something that I'd love to talk about, which is, you know, this, this whole issue of um, kind of, human rights and how exactly it gets weaponized. Um, and so, I don't know, I could do one or the other. Um, but uh, the thoughts I have of this is, I I'm sure that you've suffered from this as well. Um, you know, you get called an Assadist, you get called a Putinist, etc., uh, or a Putin, you know, apologist or whatever. You know, I think what's kind of fascinating about that is um, there's a smuggled premise that underlies that, which is um, basically it's, po it's possible as a non-Russian or a non-Syrian to be an Assadist. In other words, what really what's going on there is basically the, the, the jurisdiction has become international. Do you see, hear what I'm saying? Like it, so once you start that argument, you've kind of conceded the point that somehow we, you know, me as a Canadian, British, uh, whatever um, citizen can, has the right to, you know, judge these situations, right? Absolutely. And so Absolutely. Once, totally agree. Once, you've, once, you've, once you've started that, you kind of lost, it's like getting the ball to the, to the 10 yard line and it's so, so easy to get it over the, over the finish, you know? And so it seems to me that I, I and I see this with all sorts of pro, you know, there are all sorts of problems with this. Corbin, you know, who, who is anyone going to come out and say they're not in favor of human rights? Of course not, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but the problem is that um, you've conceded, you know, it's it's like Assange. Why is Assange in prison? You know, for when he's not an uh, an American 
citizen. Uh, he didn't commit any crimes while on American soil. And yet, once you concede, you know, the thing, then you've basically Im- implicitly kind of given the U.S., you know, universal jurisdiction. And it's the same thing when someone calls you an Assadist or, you know, a Putin apologist or whatever. Um, so it seems to me that this, the principle is really simple here, um, is, you know, democracy, human rights or whatever, demand, let's say, let's talk about democracy, demands at least two things. It, it demands the ability to change a government peacefully in, con- in a constitutional manner, and it requires the freedom to do that free of outside interference. So the whole game that's being played with this is to confuse those two things. Both of those condi- both of those are necessary but not not sufficient conditions, right? The the way that this argument and the way that the the US um kind of messaging about this works is you get those two things confused and then suddenly everyone's suddenly in a position to judge whether Assad is the right ruler of of Syria. And they haven't even like recognized that that move has been made on them. You see what I'm getting at? And what that means Absolutely. is that you basically Absolutely. what that what that uh, means is yeah. that you've go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. What what that means is that you've um, sorry you you've basically robbed Syrians of that ability to. Uh, you know, it's a bit, it, it's like not having any skin in the game, right? It's the same problem that Yasha Levine talks about all the time with weaponized di- dispor- diasporas, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, look at perfect example, the classic example is Cubans, right? In, in Miami or whatever. Um, they have every reason to, um, you know, because they have no, they have no skin in the game. They're not there anymore. So, and that's the horrifying. And I mean, Syria is the best example of this because think about what the choice was. If your choice is whatever you want to say about Assad, uh, and it's often incredibly badly informed, I would also say because no one ever says anything about the reforms that Assad has done or whatever. And then there's a whole issue about the fact that you know, honestly, if you have the if you have the, um, you know, if you have the uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in in your polity, you have a big security problem. I'm sorry, right? And that should not. And the idea that that should come as a surprise, or it's even possible as a Westerner after spending 20 years fighting supposed war on terror, is one of the most absurd artifacts of this whole moment, right? I mean, I got your point, and, and, and yeah, I got your point, and Lee, look. There's something to me so kind of it's it's so to call someone an Assad it's, it's such a racist term because basically it reduces as I, I think you're pointing to an entire country of millions of people it reduces them to to a caricature of one person and that's what basically is done anytime the U.S. wants to demonize an entire country and overthrow their government and cause massive suffering is the country gets reduced down to being a caricature of one person. Kind of like, kind of like what the U.S. did with Saddam Hussein, and anybody who opposes yep. the U.S. policy is then framed as, you know, a Saddamist or an Assadist. It's so stupid, and it's like, look, could we, do we? Um, I don't know. If you're in Canada and you like Trudeau, are you a Trudeauist? You know, it's like yeah. it's, 
it doesn't or actually it, it, that, that's like that's actually not even a fair analogy if you're in canada and you don't want to see your government ruled by al-qaeda or other sectarian death squads are you a trudeauist that's pretty much what what that term means and that's why when someone calls me a sadist i call them a sadist um and i thank them for the opportunity to uh to call them that because i love that play on words it actually brings me a lot of joy to uh, to flip it around on them but yeah it's uh yeah. i agree uh i agree the you know you th that 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 term should never be legitimized and it should be always rejected and and mocked because it's so ridiculous and anti-intellectual and so offensive because you just would never do that about western countries you know you wouldn't reduce entire western countries down to just uh one person you know uh, and so why, how can you accept that for a place like Syria, which is, a, by the way, I, I was there for the first time in June, and it's such a rich society with so many um, different cultures, different languages. I mean, they still speak Aramaic there in certain villages. Yeah. I went to I went to that village, uh, Malula, where uh, it, it's still being spoken, and I saw the churches that were vandalized by and, and defaced and attacked by al-Nusra. And that's what the U.S. and its allies wanted to destroy. And anyone who opposes that is somehow an Assadist, whatever that means. It's um, it's it's sick. And you know, truly, the real barbarians are us, and and what we tried to impose there. Yeah, I mean, no, you you made me think about it. I mean, uh, again, because I I do think that's really remarkable that the fact that you know. No one would ever call, you know, no one would ever shame anyone over being a supporter of Merkel in, in Germany, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, there's yeah. an incredible, there's an incredible just ripping level of condescension and, some, you know, um, and frankly, you know, uh, Orientalist kind of uh, stuff behind it. But I, I mean, I'm still I, not not to belabor the point, but I. I do think we keep falling for these things where you've got these smuggled premises into the conversation. And once you've given that up, you're, you're almost finished. Right. And I mean, the, the thing, if there's one thing that I really want to highlight is just how, you know, the right to protect is really the right to attack. Right. That the, you know, the, the, the fact that you've, in it, you're actually able to shame people by saying this. And the antidote to me is what I say all the time, which is, guess what? I can't be an Assadist because I'm not Syrian, right? I have exactly no, right. I have no, I have no say in that election. I have, no, yeah. you know, the recent election that he won. And who yeah. wouldn't win the election after fighting a war for seven years or whatever it was? I can't remember. You know, against, against. Contra Wahhabi Contras, you know, like yeah. And this, the, is the level made, the, this is a point that I made when I came back. I mean, I, you know, I was there during the election, and I I can't vouch for the results. I'm not a monitor, but what I can say, and I saw firsthand, he has a very strong base of support. And I saw this hearing from people who lived under the sectarian death squads, like in Duma, like Jaysh al Islam, called Army of Islam, where they paraded. Uh, Alawites in cages and forced people to dig tunnels. And so for anyone, and what I said when I came back was, I mean, I don't know exactly what vote tally he got in this election. I, I don't really care. What I do know, first of all, it's not our business. Second of all, it's understandable that he has a huge base of support, which is impossible to ignore when you're there on the ground, because he defeated an Al-Qaeda or ISIS yeah. takeover of his country. 
So in that context, how could he not be seen as a hero? And when I said that, you know, my some of my detractors tried to um, use that against me. But to me, it's just an obvious point, and it's very chauvinist to pretend otherwise, you know. And of course, if these people lived under Assad and he saved them from what Assad and his government saved Syrians from in Syria, they'd be kissing his feet <laughs> because you know yeah. they wouldn't want to live on, under Al Qaeda either. But people can't recognize that as because they've internalized. It's dehumanization of anybody who's on the U.S. target list for regime change. And um, it's sad to see. But, you know, what's cool for me is it's, you know, I get to interact with all kinds of people like you and everyone who follows me who don't accept that that point of view. And it's uh, it's heartening for me because especially when you're in media, there's not that many people who think that way. And so many people kind of just accept not because they're bad people, just because they don't really they don't take the time to think about it. They accept the underlying chauvinism and dehumanization that drives so much of U.S. policy to countries overseas. Yeah, no, I know. I can't imagine what it's like to be in media. I mean, it's such a weird time because the opportunities, I mean, they, they give you guys a massive open lane, right? <laughs> you know, yes, they do. To actually do the job that they're supposed to be doing. So in a way, it's kind of a golden age. That's what I say to a lot of people. It's a golden age of journalism, right? Because yeah. – you know, the, the the corporate product and the legacy product is so awful that, um, you know, the, the people who stand out stand out pretty proud of, you know, the background for sure. Yeah. But yep. Yep. The other the other thing and I um, and I'd love to hear what Kusha has to say about that, who I think is kind of up in the in the in the queue, because I, I do think it's one of it's one of like the most fascinating like kind of riddles of this whole thing you know every time i wince every time i hear jeremy corbyn talk about human rights because this stuff needs to get sorted out human rights has been completely um you know instrumentalized in this process where where it really needs to be kind of clarified because you know if it can if it can be used in such a way as to actually create the opposite then it's useless, right? Mm-hmm. But the other thing I wanted, to, and tell me, Aaron, maybe I should jump in back in later. But the other thing I, I think is really intriguing about and horrifying about the Ukraine Russia situation is, and I've you know I've been arguing with people on Twitter quite a bit over this about the past little while, but no one in the mainstream media at all seems to understand that the Russians have stolen a 10 year March on us, uh, uh, in terms of military technology. And the reason that that is so important is, you know, it's bad enough that we're, it's, it's this bad, but you know, the, are you talking the Russians about Putin's based- hypersonic uh, missiles? Is that what you're talking about? Well, it's a whole suite of stuff. It's, it's electronic warfare. It's it's zircon. It's all of the the suite of stuff, and yeah. So um, and and it, so what I'm what I'm trying to get at is the perception is, and you can see where this comes from. You know that the West has dominance, uh, econo- uh, military dominance here. Um, in a general sense, and it's actually no longer true. And what that means is that 
if the, the Russians have the ability to basically, just as an example, there's a very good piece from Moon of, Moon of Alabama about a U.S. Navy, um, you know, study of this. You know, basically any ship that we put into the Black Sea is a target, right? Like basically it's sunk in the first three minutes of any, ma- you know, major conflagration. What that means is that the, the time between, you know, these things and without even talking about nuclear weapons yet, the, 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 the slope of, um, of, you know, escalation is so mm-hmm. much is so high and yet the assumption is of of, of western ability to dominate russia mm-hmm. you know is so much different than that the shock of that could easily break through any compulsion about you know nuclearizing the whole thing and i really i it's really worth it's really worth digging into there's a really great an- analyst called andre martinov who's written a book about this that I've read about that I've read, I should say. Um, and the gap between people's understanding of, you know, there's a, that's why Russia is able to give ultimatums is because, but no one in the West understands this and it's terrifying. Right. Yeah. Well, look, it's, this is not an issue I've looked into, but uh, I remember when Putin unveiled the, whatever they are, the hypersonic missiles, and that set off a panic in the U.S. establishment because basically the the premise there was that these missiles could get around some U.S. air defenses. And it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. Russia spends a lot of money on their weaponry. And it's just um, this whole thing of encouraging confrontation between the world's top nuclear powers, even without getting into the details you have. It's just it's scary on its face. But yet that's been the the prevailing position across both parties for many years now and um it it got you know and and this is kind of why i i was so vocal on russiagate is because the russiagate was like legitimating all of this it was making the way to like be like a woke citizen resisting trump was to like hate russia and encourage confrontation with it and denounce yeah. any kind of effort that and support nato and it's such an obvious disinformation campaign and it's scary um and you've given me some stuff to be more scared about and to look into which i which i will so um th- thanks for that it's i uh if you have more information about it, stuff please please send it to me because i i haven't followed russia's uh weapon system development very closely um but i do see i do see that Kusha is back is back is back in line so let's let let's bring him back in if that's cool tim and let him uh pick up where he left off because i think i think i think uh he's been waiting patiently for a while he has yeah thanks aaron i appreciate it thank you tim Thank you, Aaron, uh, for having me back in. And thank you, Tim, um, for giving some um, uh, points to reflect on and respond to. And I do have I've, I've taken some notes on what you said. And I do want to respond to them. So here are some words you used uh, when you were making um, your statements. You said for uh, someone, quote, you said, I can't be an Assadist because I'm not Syrian, end quote. Uh, maybe okay. I, I think that's very much what you said. I, that may not be verbatim, but I believe you did say that. And also that making such criticisms would essentially be Orientalist, right? Another thing you said was skin in the game, right? And so those are all things you said. And so what I want to do now is go through these points one by one and show you the fallacy behind all of them. So firstly, the point I can't be an Assadist because I'm not Syrian 
is a foul. Right, Kusha, Kusha, I, have, Kusha I have one request. Kusha, I have one request. Pick your pick your top points, okay? Because you, you take I, I I can tell you take copious notes. You write a lot. You write a lot down, and I don't want to have like another lengthy debate with you. But I I am up for a debate. So like whatever your top points are, focus on those. Um, and hopefully, if you have other statements of mine that you want to hold against me, you can return to them next time. But let's let's try to stream let's try to streamline this debate if that's possible. That's that's my request to you. Okay, is that fair? I'll try my best. Okay, thank you. Thank okay. You. But so this was a very important one, I think. Okay. Uh, okay. The I can't be an Asadist because I'm not Syrian. Because it plays into a fallacy of origins uh, that is essentially the identity politics of the modern U.S. and around the world. Oh, I cannot talk about issues because uh, certain issues because I'm not black, because I'm not a woman, because I'm not Latino, because I'm not gay, because I'm not an elderly person, I don't have diabetes, you name it. So I don't understand why the Assadism element plays a part. Now, the th important thing is that I never called Aaron Assadist. Further, there, there are Westerners, Western journalists, British ones, who are Assadists and Western. That is an immediate counterexample rejecting that entire statement. All you need is one to reject an always statement. Uh, or, uh, um, and so, for instance, Vanessa Beely is one British journalist, and in her leaked messages, she said, quote, to be honest, torture happened. I'm never going to say it publicly, but it happened in reference in reference to Assad and in Syria. And uh, I should end the quote earlier, but yeah, in reference to Assad and in Syria. So there you go. There's your example of someone who's a Westerner who is an Assadist. I don't understand how any other protection of Assad in that manner would not qualify as so. Secondly, okay, so that was the first point. Let us refer back to the Nazis in the 1930s in the United States. In Madison Square Garden, and I believe it was 1939, was it? About 20,000 people, Americans, gathered uh, in support of the Nazis, okay? Were they not Hitlerites? Were they not Nazis? Yes, they were. One has to be intellectually honest here. They were Nazis. And so what happened But hold on. I can't equate someone who defends the Syrian government for, and who is on the side of the Syrian government when it's fighting a war. It didn't start. I'm not, Aaron, I will is that not a cover-up that Beely did? Is that not a cover-up? Oh, look, uh, look. No, sure. Listen, listen. As long as uh, I, I'm also... Honest, no, uh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but Beely is not a very big fan of mine, and I never cite She's her not. work. Yeah, no. Uh, so, so no I'm not, and that's I'm why not, I like you. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but at the same time, I'm also not going to dismiss her as an Assadist. She may be a supporter of the Syrian government. Um, and but that's a cover-up. That's a cover-up. I'm not going to... You know that's a cover-up. No, no, hold on a second. Is that not a cover-up? Okay, hold on, hold, on, hold on a second. Hold on. I'm not the point of my conversation with Tim. I think. I mean, uh, Tim might see it differently, but where I really agree with with his point is that it's like the term Assadist itself. It's just not a legitimate term. It's 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 a term used to uh, stigmatize and demonize people who don't accept the right of foreign governments to destroy a country. Um, and so I'm not going to someone who covers up evidence that incriminates Assad, not an Assadist. Please be honest there. No, I'm sorry. There, there, you can, you can, I, I'm happy to Does say not that support it, Assad. No, uh, exactly. I'm happy to say that if someone uh, covers up evidence of torture under Assad, that they, then you can say they're whitewashing or they're covering up. That's an accurate description of what sure. they're doing. If, if it's a but semantic call, issue, like you said, it was I'm not going to name call. I'm not going to, I'm not going to name call because the name, as Tim was saying, it legitimizes it legitimizes an underlying chauvinism 
that I'm just I just don't accept. So I, I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna adopt the term Assadist. It's just you know I, it's I won't do it. Now you can criticize what Vanessa Bealey did, and you know she she might say, and I, I want to be fair to her that uh, she's not going to spend her time criticizing Assad when Assad's government is fighting a criminal, murderous, dirty war. And when when that happens, you know bad things will happen, including torture. That that I think might be her defense. I don't want to speak for her, but uh, I, what I'm not going to do is uh, dismiss her as an Assadist because I I don't accept the name. I'm sorry. It's like a, it's a derogatory term, and it's not. I'd rather just be descriptive about what someone's doing. But look, if you look, if you know, if you want to call her an Assadist or whoever, that's that that's your business. But it's like why I don't understand why why it's such a big like like what am I doing that makes that 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 you find fault with is it like and so far i'm gathering you think it's i don't know hypocritical or it's not uh it's not consistent to focus on the crimes of the u.s and not equally that was not what i said if you recall what i said it was okay so i'm asking i'm asking i'm asking yeah i will will continue outlining you if that's what you want i was going to respond more to tim as well but i'll return back to what i had for you as well Okay. Is that when I made those criticisms about the Islamic Republic, about Syria, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, you yeah. uh, say what you said is I won't endorse or condemn and so on. I want you to know that I do have friends in, in these areas that were leftists. They're, Aaron, my family, my dad was a leftist in Iran who escaped. He was supposed to be executed. My dad was mm. tortured and he had a book thrown in his face by a mullah. What, what, I don't understand. You know, like. There and and also, but it's not because I'm. That's why I open with the fallacy of origin. It's not because I'm Iranian that it that my opinion or I'm an Iranian diaspora or anything. You can have Iranian diaspora who are supporters of Muhammad Reza Pahlavi Shah. You can have Iranian diaspora who are supporters of Trump. Many are who are neocons. That doesn't matter. That's what I'm saying is that's irrelevant. It's a fallacy of origins. This this Orientalism is thrown to distract as well. Now because Tim mentioned it. Orientalism, Edward Said's famous 1978 book, Edward Said is someone who supported Khomeini. Well, in this, if you want to say like, Kusha, don't say he supported Khomeini. Well, what he did was he rejected the demonization of Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979 in Time magazine and in other appearances. And Khomeini was one of the most murderous leaders of the modern world. And you're going to say, Kusha, of course, George Bush and Tony Blair. Yes, they were murderous too, Aaron. I'm not we're not doing counting the numbers game. They were murderous. He was super murderous. In 1988, uh, he murdered thousands, up to even 33,000 I've seen, largely leftists. Now, yes, Mujahideen al was also heavily murdered too, and there are terrorist sex cult that you've talked about at great length. But what I'm saying is this, very importantly, that you bring in uh, people like Luke Harding and Michael Durant, and you push back hard, hard and well, you push back hard and well, and I appreciate that. But when you bring in Mirandi, your show pushback, it feels like layup. Like he just gets to talk about, you know, what Biden does horribly, what Trump does horribly. It's all true, of course. But it's coming from someone who's literally a top propagandist for the Islamic Republic. And I don't like, agree with that. You know, you I don't agree with that. I don't agree okay, now, prop- okay, you want me to defend? Oh, okay, I'm going to defend that then. I'm going to defend that. <laughs> no, but hold on a second. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Hold on, hold on. Um, Morandi is a professor at the University of Tehran. He's a friend of mine. I like him a lot. And right now, um, whatever problems there are with the Iranian government, and I know, and I've said before that I know that the Iranian government has really, has hurt its people. It's cracked down on dissidents. It's done horrible things, as I talked about 
friends of mine have directly suffered from that when they had to flee the country. And I'm so, really sorry what happened to you and your family. And I don't mean to, at all to minimize any of that. But in the case of someone like Morandi, their population right now is being subjected to economic warfare um, and sabotage campaigns, you know, with Israel assassinating scientists and uh, an effort to basically make women and children suffer, including die. Uh, if it means advancing U- U- U.S. hegemony, that's pretty much what the U.S. policy is. And so at a time like that, I think Iran has every right to uh, have people willing to speak to the Iranian government's concerns. That doesn't mean I endorse all the Iranian government's positions in the same way that just just because I oppose the dirty war in Syria doesn't mean I endorse all the Syrian government's positions. That That to me is Iranian's business. And I think the best way for Iran to resolve its business is to be left alone and not be subjected to murderous sanctions. And while they are being subjected to murderous sanctions, that. while they are being subjected to murderous sanctions, I'm, I, I think they have every right to be able to talk about uh, what, what the impact is. And Mirandi, I think, is uh, something I really are just a really insightful voice on what the U.S. is doing to Iran. And he, uh, he, you know, I, I think he has every right to like to speak now. Um, and this gets to our fundamental disagreement. I'm just not at a time when it, Iran's being subjected to so much, I think, Western backed terror. I'm not going to bring someone on just to grill them about the things that Iran does wrong internally or, 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 or criminally. It's just, it just I don't see that as, as as my place. And I know you, you disagree with that. And that is the subject that that's what the ongoing debate is about. Yeah, OK, now may I please respond? So I'm going to use yes. two of your top yes. journalistic role models in response. I'm going to use Izzy Stone. You won an award in his name in 2019. Okay, I.F. Stone, one of the best journalists in the 20th century of the United States, who was relentless against Richard Milhouse Nixon and others in the United States, and also against Stalin and Trotsky. Okay, what is it that um, uh, he said? He said that the point of journalism was, quote, to write the truth, to defend the weak against the strong, to fight for justice, to bring healing perspectives, to bear on the terrible hates and fears of mankind uh, in the hope of someday bringing about a world in which mankind will enjoy the differences of the human garden instead of killing each other over them. Okay, end quote. And then secondly, Robert Fisk. In The Great War for Civilization, I mentioned Robert Fisk the last time we spoke in episode six. He wrote on the last page of the preface that I have that book that a family member gave and I cherish that book. He says, quote, that's a big, I think in the that's end, a big book, that, by the way. That is, that's a big book. It is, I haven't read through all of it. I read through snippets like for yeah. fun. If I am looking to entertain myself because there's so many incredible stories, riveting stories, gotcha. I'll read like yeah. a few pages. Um, yeah, it is a huge book, though. It's like a thousand plus pages. He says in the last page of the preface, but that what he says there really stuck with me and it's relevant to you given your profession. He says, quote, and I think in the and I think in the end, that is the best definition of journalism I have heard to challenge authority, all authority, all authority. I'm repeating it, but especially so when governments and politicians take us to war, when they have decided that they will kill and others will die, end quote. Now. What I say that is because you clearly are in a situation where you have a friendship with um, Mirandi, and you said you have friends who are Iranian leftists, Syrian leftists, right? Now you're clearly making a value judgment. You're saying, okay, I'm gonna, I have this friendship with those other ones uh, that uh, were persecuted and they fled. Now, how are they going to feel? How are they going to feel? Have I even asked them? I'm stepping in your shoes. Have I even asked them how they feel about me not stepping up? using? I have asked them. I have. My, I have asked them. Hold on. You know what? 
against Mirandi in public? I haven't seen it. Against Mirandi in public, no, no, I haven't no. seen it. No, no, no. Not in public, but I'll tell you. My really good friend, who's Iranian, uh, was upset when I had on Mirandi. Yeah, he, he was. He was. He, he was very upset. Um, and uh, and when you wrote me to criticize me about it, I said to you, I'd be happy to have on leftist Iranian voices to express you know th- their perspective and i'm 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 still committed to that i haven't done it yet because you know i just it hasn't happened yet you're very busy. you're very well yeah but, I know. <laughs> it like sounds like an excuse but, I am, but 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 but, it's, but but i'll be honest again it's not my top priority is to criticize the iranian government at a time when the iranian government and its people are being strangulated by the u.s but i did say i disagree I would, with the time but okay. I appreciate but, your but, I, but, I, but, I, but I did say that I would do it, and I, and I will do it. I, I, I think it's fair. I don't want to ignore anybody, um, and uh, and I'm not, and I don't want to suggest that uh, that the Iranian government is is uh, is is innocent and and doesn't do horrible things. I I know they do. I mean, that, unfortunately, that's kind of the reality of the world. And again, just yeah, I mean, I think we're going in circles now. But my concern is what my what the what the world's most powerful governments are doing and what. What I can do to stop it, and when it comes to Iran, there's a lot I can do to stop suffering. I can, uh, the West can stop imposing it with murderous sanctions, and that that is my top concern. And when you you know when you start highlighting all the flaws of a targeted government, a targeted society, that just that 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 gets weaponized to support more sanctions and suffering. And I just I'm I'm uncomfortable with doing that. But it also doesn't mean that you ignore. The crimes of a government, whether it's Iran or anybody else, and um, mm-hmm. I, you know, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Stone yeah. and Fisk both had those similar situations, but they did it anyhow. Cornell West does it. It's exactly in his book, The Echo- Ethical Dimensions of Marxist I got it. Thought. I got it. Yeah, yeah. And when I and I did it with Syria too. Uh, with Syria, I used to, you know, call yes. That's why I complimented. Yeah, yeah, I got it, but, my, but, I, but, but I was, but but it was hypocritical. I'm, I won't do that anymore because no, 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 no it's, it's not. It's hypocritical. Not it is, to is my no. argument. I liked it, it when you did that. No, I, 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 of course, not to minimize Syrians who suffer under Assad, but I'm again, it comes. I'm not going to condemn Assad uh, or demonize him and his government for horrible things that happen in response to a war they didn't start. A, a murderous contra war imposed me outside. It's completely hypocritical to do that, and I won't do that anymore. I, I did do that, and I think that was me, honestly, subconsciously trying to cater to the pro- uh, propaganda so I wouldn't be called an Assadist or something like that. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but I but I wouldn't be surprised because these these name-calling tactics and, and demonization tactics have an impact, So, and I'm not, I'm not above them. So... But I won't do that anymore. Now, call me all the names you want because I don't like dirty wars and sanctions. Well, Aaron, what I would say is your learning and my learning from you, of course, about uh, features of U.S. dirty war in Syria through funding ISIS, al-Qaeda, as Biden said, as John Kerry said, as uh, others have said, it doesn't retroactively erase Assad's history of I agree with murder. that. We well, agree. We, we so, agree. Well, we, I mean, I don't think Bashar al-Assad was, was guilty. So that's of why I don't have any issue with you saying it. It's, it's hypocritical to stop saying it because of that. It's, and hypocritical wouldn't be the right word in your sense, but yeah. uh, in the way you want to use it, I think. But okay, it's, last, it's, it's last hypocritical point. to Assad's father uh, did, Assad's father did Hoffman. commit mass. Yeah, 
did did commit mass murder when he put down the Muslim Brotherhood uprising uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, but it mainly was the civilians who were. Uh, well, you know, look, I I haven't so, studied it, but what I also know is that it was it was something. It wasn't just a massacre of innocent civilians. That's not that's not the full story. It happened after the Muslim Brotherhood, of course. Uh, yes, launched yes, launched an yes. insurgency. Launched an insurgency that with a lot of attacks, including killing hundreds of police cadets, right, in Aleppo, I believe. So this was a – and basically, he, um, in response to that, he crushed the center of the Muslim Brotherhood at the time, which I believe was Hama, right, and, and killed a lot of people mm-hmm. in the process, although although the, death, the exact death figure has been disputed. And by the way yes, – yes. and by the way, there is also evidence there of British intelligence and I believe U.S. intelligence – as well, being involved in backing the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the part of the story that gets left out. So that's another case where you need actually some nuance when talking about things like that. And I, I reject these cartoonish portrayals of these of these demonized, targeted Global South leaders as just these bloodthirsty mass murderers. Um, if anybody fits that bill, it's the people who the U.S. has supported, not the people who the U.S. is trying to to overthrow. Um, that is, Kusha, that's my last comment to you for now, because I have another, there's another caller in who hasn't spoken yet today, and I want to get to everybody. Oh, sure. Oh, I see today. Okay, so, so uh, but I, I really, first of all, appreciate you coming in. You always have substantive things to say, and I look forward to the next round. I really do too, Aaron. It's been such a joy being able to have now a third conversation with you and your openness to taking, because I honestly, I want to just conclude with this. I really believe that you have such an amazing father. And I said the first time I spoke with you was one of the opening things. You know, we actually hey, you know what, Kusha, Kusha, uh, Kusha, let me stop you. Let me stop you because actually, years. my Kusha, let me stop you because actually, my father just walked in the room. So let me actually uh, let him let him hear you say let him hear you say that if I can get the speaker. Oh yeah, here. I would love to. If if I let me let me see. Point, I, let me see yeah. if I can get this to work. Um, Sure. Um, anyway, you know what? I can't get it to work. I don't want to mess up the sound, but I'll just tell my dad. Dad, sure. a caller says that you're a great guy. Uh, well, um, if, if you want me to say the point, I, I, I'd be happy to just finish on that. That's all right. Yeah. But, well, I mean, he has ahead, the same birthday as me. 54 years before me, he was born. And I know he survived the Holocaust, a Hungarian uh, Jewish Holocaust survivor. And I think he gave you a very wonderful upbringing that led you to put your body on the line when it came to your uh, protest during your college year against Benjamin Netanyahu, who was a mass murderer himself of precious Palestinians. And I think it really um, gave you an open mind in many ways. And you grew up to be a very decent person in large part because of him. Of course, I'm sure your mother is a very wonderful person, too in that how you grew up. I just don't know as much about it because your dad's much more of a public figure, understandably. But that's what I wanted to conclude with. And that's why I appreciate the fact that you're so receptive to taking constructive pushback because I really believe in you. And I really would love to convince you about these points. And uh, I hope to use as many different examples and facts and instances and developments as I possibly can pull to try to change your mind to the best of my abilities. So I really appreciate that about you. Well, thanks, Kusha. I appreciate that. And thank you for saying all that. I'm going to give my dad no credit, actually. Now that he's right here with me, I'm, I'm going to give him <laughs> Dad, you want to say anything to... Uh... No, no. Yeah, I appreciate hearing the appreciation. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, Tim, I see you're back in line, but because there's another caller who hasn't uh, weighed in yet, I'm going to let them come in next, okay? Just give them a chance to speak before we start to wrap up. And uh, so it's for Revolution, Chris, and remember to unmute yourself when you come in. Hey, Aaron. Good evening. You're uh, 
putting me in a tough position going against Brianna Joy Gray's Colin and Jimmy Dore's uh, live stream tonight. I oh my god, it's a, it's like yeah, uh, it, it's like but... primetime tel, it's like primetime television. You know, all these <laughs> hit, all these hit shows competing against each other. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Okay, I if you're speaking, I have lost you. So hopefully people can still, if people can still hear me, can they give me a thumbs up? Yeah, okay. So, Chris, I have lost you. So I'm going to take you out of the call. For accepting it. Um, oh, there you are. No, there you are. Okay, now you're back. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you were speaking, I missed all of it. So why don't you start again? I said after, uh, I just said that I appreciate people like Kusha who will, I think that's how you say that gentleman's name, um, that will push on people's ideology and beliefs in, in a productive, productive, instructive way. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I really like that. Um, don't always agree with them, but uh, I do like hearing people that will push on things. One thing I wanted to ask you about, you, you and I, I think I've, little bit different views on uh on the vaccine and and i like to call it a shot because it's a lot more like a flu shot in terms of being a booster than an actual vaccination but um i wanted to ask you what you thought about england or the uk backing off a lot of their uh protocols and ending mask mandates and whatnot and what you think that will do and what you think it, uh, whether the U.S. And, and Canada, I know you're in Canada right now, um, if they should follow suit, if they they should stand against that, what's your what's your thought on, on some of these COVID restrictions? I don't think I have much of use to say. I'm uncomfortable talking about this issue because I'm not a scientist. I'm not a medical expert. I haven't looked into it. You know, I haven't studied the coronavirus, how it works, how it spreads, and I – the information that's come out is, to me, has been contradictory. Um, I yeah. do, I do um, think you know. I do, who, anyone in my life and anyone who follows me who values my opinion, I I personally encourage people to get vaccinated, especially if they're in a um, a vulnerable part of the population, because I just I do trust that the vaccines work. I don't. I think to lie about something like something as, you know, vaccines re- reducing the chances of hospitalization and, and death to pull off a lie like that, I just think would be um, almost impossible to do. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, I, um, you know, when we have this kind of arbitrary random thing where you, it's like on a plane, you can not wear a mask when you're eating, but you have to put it on the rest of the time. And you have, you know, a lot of people's, a lot of people's livelihoods being severely impacted by these lockdowns. Uh, for a country to decide to end part of that, I think um, I it, it makes sense to me. But I I'm not like endorsing it because I just haven't looked at all the different data, and I just think it's it's a very very big question. But like in, instinctually, if you ask me what I think of a of Britain doing that, it makes sense to me because I do think that I mean we we've been in this for two years now. There is a vaccine. Anybody who wants the vaccine can get it. 
And so given, given the availability of it and given that, you know, if we do believe that it offers protection, why continue to shut everything down, especially when this thing, it's, it's just going to spread. I just think that the idea of stopping the spread at this point, China looks like they did it, but they're a very different society and they organized around it very quickly and a lot differently than the West did. And now it's just kind of for shutdowns and lockdowns to work at this point and stopping the spread just doesn't, on the surface, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So um, yeah. do I think, yeah, so it makes sense to me, but again, I'm just hesitant to endorse it fully because I haven't looked at all the underlying issues and I haven't even looked at the counter arguments. I, um, I, I do think, yeah. The people that put out the Great Barrington Declaration and do you agree with any of those sentiments at all? I, uh, well, you know, I haven't, I haven't even read, yeah, 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 I haven't, I haven't even read the Great Barrington Declaration, but. um, A more focused question. Do you think that maybe the best plan through COVID and granted, like when it first came up, we didn't know a lot. We, there's a lot of, of ignorance and, and needing to learn more about it and -hmm. understand more about it, but. In hindsight, it seems to my, from my perspective, at least, I want to, you know, say that, um, but it seems to me that maybe we made a bit of a mistake in terms of, of halting everyone's lives and we should have made a, a much more focused attempt on protecting the vulnerable, protecting elderly, uh, obese people with pre-existing conditions, underlying conditions, and help those people out. And allow everybody else who's healthy to continue their lives. You know, you, you you brought up the thing on the plane where you can you can take your mask off while eating. That's how restaurants operate too. I go into a restaurant where I live and I, I walk to my table with a mask on, and then I take my mask off. Yeah, it's stupid. It's yeah, that part's so dumb. Yeah. And when I exit the restaurant, I gotta put my mask back on. It doesn't yeah. make it. It's everybody's yeah. sharing germs in those contexts. Everybody's sharing the same same air and breathing yeah. the same air. So, you know, what do you think about, I guess, that specific aspect of the Great Barrington Declaration, wherein we should have focused more on, on the vulnerable and allowed most other people to kind of continue their lives? Well, if you can conclusively prove, and I'm not endorsing this because, again, I haven't looked at all the underlying studies and the conflicting studies, but if you can conclusively prove that basically COVID is pretty much exclusively a serious risk for the vulnerable, for the elderly and people with multiple comorbidities, then yeah, then you could argue that the idea of of having it circulate, which it would anyway through a healthy population, makes sense. But, you know, I don't think... It's like uh, looking back now, to me, it made sense that when this broke out, you shut things down because people didn't know, you know, there just wasn't the awareness that there there is now. And, you know, some people think that that was that 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 it was known from the start that this was only something that impacts the extreme vulnerable. And so they didn't have to shut everything down. And um, but I don't know. To me, it made sense that when you have this deadly virus, you don't know much about it to shut things down. And certainly I think now, as I said before, two years later, when you have vaccines and everybody can get them, um, at least, you know, actually I should qualify that everybody in the in global the, North. Yeah. Global. Not every, yeah. In the yeah. global South, um, they're still not fully available. It, now to me, it makes sense to, to ease the stuff because I do think that the lockdowns caused 
a lot of harm. And if you look at who benefited, it really was the ultra wealthy. I mean, there was just some new studies out about this, about, you know, the world's uh, richest uh, billionaires becoming even richer, uh, something like $2 trillion worth of extra oh, yeah. wealth went to them. It's crazy. So, um, yeah. And in terms of Great Barrington, I haven't read it, but I did. Uh, Max Blumenthal did an interview with two of the people behind it. And I was expecting them to be based on their media portrayals, a lot different than how they came off. They came off to me as reasonable people. Now, um, I know people don't like them and they think they're wing nuts. And I, I'm just telling you my impression on what I heard from them. I, they were pro-vaccine. They, they didn't say anything negative at all about the vaccine. And that was uh, from what I had read about them in the media or, or heard about them in the media, I, that I wasn't expecting that. And uh, they, they struck me at least as people who should um, be heard and not be shut down. And that's the part about this that I don't like is like the, you know, the shutting down of anybody who has questions about the about like whatever Dr. Fauci says. I, I think you have to allow debate. And um, I think it's cool that Max did it's that. Yeah. Such a push for censorship, uh, especially yeah. around COVID. It kind of started. It started with COVID and, and like even Trump shouldn't be censored and pushed off of media. I mean, as much of a menace and, and, you know, crappy human as he is, you know, like people that I listen to and, and Jimmy, who's a friend of yours, uh, says, you know, the solution to bad speech isn't ending that speech. It's more speech. It's speech that counters that. And I think that you believe in that as well. And the censorship thing. Over the last couple of years, last several years, in fact, has been really, really gross. Uh, you mentioned China. I wanted to push on that a little bit. Do you believe their numbers? They say, like, basically there's no COVID in their country. And it seems, you know, especially with this Omicron spike, which is hitting everybody, every nation, even Australia, which has had some really aggressive measures in in place you know covid camps locking people down you know segregating people uh who've been exposed and who are sick and 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 whatnot they even are having a spike and and china just doesn't but they're an international economy they have travel within or in and out of their borders um, all the time, lots of travel in and out of their borders, which obviously is how this is spreading, how COVID will always spread. Do you believe the numbers that China's putting out? Well, I'll say this. You know, I've never been to China, and I don't want to weigh in on something where I just don't have the the any kind of evidence to go with. But I will say, I find their numbers hard to believe. And if they're true, it's incredible. But I also, I would not be surprised at all if they are uh, if there's been some, you know, remember that line from the, the wire juking the stats, I would not be surprised if there was some of that, but I just, you know, I don't know. I don't want to like cast doubt on China when I've, I've never been there and I haven't looked into, you know, their response. What, what I, I do believe that their number, like, regardless of what the actual figures are, I do believe that they're significantly less than what we've seen in the U S because I do think that they had a much different response than the U S did. So I, I do think that they're. I do. I. I. I do believe that the numbers are significantly different, but in terms of the, the specificity, no. Like, I, obviously, I, I have no way to tell. I want to say two more things, and I know Tim's waiting, and you've been on for hour forty-five or so. But what was your experience traveling between the U.S. and Canada? I know you're in Canada right now. 
I believe. Uh, yeah. As, as far as COVID protocols in terms of traveling between the U.S. and Canada. Well, the thing I'll say is, like, I, I had to reschedule my flight because in Canada, they make you get the PCR test, right? Because they don't accept the antigen. So I got the PCR test, and they're like, it will take 24 hours, you know, don't worry. And then 20 hours, 24 hours later, I still didn't have it. And then 48 hours later was my flight. So I had to reschedule it. And then they're like, even after 36 hours, I still hadn't gotten it. Um, sorry, even after, okay, what's after 48? Yeah, even after 72 hours, uh, I still hadn't gotten it. <laughs> so I had to uh, go take a whole other test and pay actually a lot more money to get it rapidly because the free PCR test like just didn't come in in the time I needed it because Canada needs it within 72 hours. So it was a drag and it was just took up a lot of time and it was cumbersome. And um, for people who can't afford the rapid PCR test, cause it's expensive. It's $250 to get your result back within an hour. Uh, then it means you can't travel and it's just, uh, it sucks. And uh, Canada is, um, uh, you know, imposing a heavy burden on people, I think. So, yeah. Um, but uh, totally. luckily, I mean, my my tip, like my tip, if you happen to tra- be travel between Canada and the U.S. is try to avoid Toronto because the Toronto airport is crazy. It's like, I think one of the busiest airports in the world. And it's just, it makes your trip that much more cumbersome. So if you're making well, that I trip, avoid I Toronto. I cannot travel to Canada for quite some time. I'm not George yeah. W. Bush. I'm not going to get some uh, some waiver, magical I gotcha. waiver. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Last thing. Stone to you, so I'll soon uh, this question, but, or I don't know if it's a question. We'll see how it goes. Uh, your father was, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, unaware of your father until I saw him with, with uh, Roger Waters and I believe Katie Halper and Max Blumenthal, I think, on a stream like last spring, maybe early, early spring, early summer, sometime last uh, about a year ago, coming up on a year ago, and uh, just really, you know, a, a very intelligent and uh, enlightened individual. If he's still there, I, you know, passes pass along my uh, my praise for your father as well. Um, obviously my praise for you without, without saying, um, but, uh, yeah, any, is there a way to, is he have current work? Is he still like writing things anywhere? Is there a place to, there's a, there's a new, there's a new film out that he's in called, uh, the wisdom of trauma, which is about his work around trauma and it profiles him and he, and his major work, actually, it's really his, his, uh, his magnum opus is coming out later on this year. It's a book called the myth of normal which he co-wrote with my brother, Daniel, and it's uh, it's great. And it kind of synthesizes all of his work and uh, opens it up in a whole new dimension too, and it's great. And uh, that will come out in September. So that's that's what he has coming up. Awesome. Hey, Aaron, thanks for your time, and uh, good luck traveling back to the States when you leave Thank Canada. You. I appreciate that. Thank Cheers, you. Man. Thank you. Cheers. All right, Nick, I'm going to bring you in because you haven't spoken yet, and uh, – a reminder to unmute yourself when you come in. It 
so Nick, if you can hear me, I can't hear you. And what you want to do is hit the microphone button in the bottom right. Okay, Nick, are you there? Last call. No, okay. Tim, you're up and then we're gonna wrap it after this. So, all right, Tim, Nick, you're back. I'll give you one more shot. And remember, your microphone is in your bottom right corner to unmute it when you come in. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you for uh, uh, having me or uh, bringing me up. I just wanted to, I don't really have that many questions. I just wanted to thank you for uh, the great work that you do and um, and all the crew at the Gray Zone. Um, between you and Jimmy Dore, it's radically expanded my um, my view of politics. I've, I've, I've come out of the uh, Blue Anon NPR mass media um, shroud that's yeah, just uh, expanded my viewpoint seeing Things from a new perspective now, seeing um, the uh, the viciousness of uh, yeah, American foreign policy on the rest of the world, and considering things from the other side now, seeing how yeah sanctions are warfare and all that. Um, question about uh, when you went to Syria to do your reporting, um, did you uh, gain a uh, newfound perspective on um, on the conflict over there? And um, was it really enriching? And um, if someone were to travel to another area like Xinjiang to learn more about uh, conflicts from a personal perspective instead of the propaganda that we're fed through mass media, um, is it really necessary? Or it pro how vital is it that you have a fixer or someone local to really show you around and um, and uh, show you the, the true perspective. And then lastly, I'll, I'll take my these answers off the air. Lastly, uh, what's the best way to support your work? Is it through Substack? Do you have a Patreon? Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, all the work that you do, Aaron. Appreciate it. Well, thanks. I really appreciate all that. Um, in terms of my impressions of Syria and what it left me with, it's just, I, look, I, I saw things I, I'd never seen before in my life. It was my first time really going to a, a war zone or a, a post-war zone. I just saw rubble for miles and miles and miles around Damascus, like in the in in the town of Duma, which is, you know, about a 25, 30-minute drive away. And there was just some parts. I just walked in some in the remnants of apartment buildings, and they were just everywhere you looked, it was just rubble. And that was the place that JHL Islam and other sectarian death squads had occupied and they had all the money in the world and they built tunnels underneath really sophisticated tunnels and i just um and, and just looking around these are everywhere you look is someone where families used to live where factories were where normal lives were were being lived and i just it's hard to fathom when you see it up close just that level of of destruction of uh of human life and of just human activity and so you know, the biggest impact on me personally, honestly, I struggled with depression before, and I, I really truly feel, I don't want to make any declarative statements, but I truly feel as if it kind of cured me of something in that realm is because I realized that my own personal problems are just so, they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're just not even detectable when you compare it to what other people around the world have gone through, like in Syria. And uh, that is real suffering. That's real hardship. And it put... 
to me, I, de I developed a certain relationship to my own problems and struggles that there's a certain privilege to it, you know, and not that that means that it's not oh, that it's like privilege to be depressed, but just that it exists within a certain context that I can't that 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 uh, is not possible inside a war torn country like Syria, where they're they're dealing with homes being destroyed and people being occupied and by death squads and all these horrible things. So and I, you know, I also just gained some appreciation for the human spirit, the people's ability to be resilient despite living under the worst conditions, surviving a war. And now they're living under these awful sanctions that deprive them of their basic needs on purpose, because that's the goal of U.S. economic warfare is to deprive the civilian population of what they need so that they'll turn against their government. You know, that's always the aim. And so I just gained an appreciation for how resilient human beings can be. And I, I took a lot of inspiration from that. So that was part of the main impact of Syria on me. And I hope to go back. I was only there for not even a week. And I was uh, limited to a small part of the country just around Damascus. And I want to go everywhere and uh, and see more of it. Um, in terms of getting a fixer, yeah. I mean, you have to, to go to a place like Syria. And when I was there, I mean, I had to be accompanied by almost everywhere, not everywhere, but most areas, especially the areas of, you know, where there was conflict uh, with a government representative. That's how they do it there. And that, that applies to pretty much any journalist. And it's hard to do it otherwise. But um, if I do get to go back, I will be applying for a journalist visa where I can just go wherever I want and not have to, you know, uh, basically coordinate with the government. And um, that's what I hope to do next. But yeah, it's essential. You have to obviously get a fixer in a place like Syria and Xinjiang, I don't know the deal there. I've never been. I imagine, I don't know, people do travel there, you know, so I, I it, it might be different and it's not, you know, it, the level of, I mean, there have been terror attacks in Xinjiang, but it's not a war zone. So it might be very different than, than Syria. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, and if you want to support me, I mean, look, uh, it depends. If you like my writing, then I would say, you know, support me via Substack. But if you if you really like pushback show and pushback, it's like it costs money to to produce because I have because it gets edited by a by a video editor and we add graphics and all that stuff and that you know. So it depends what part of my content repertoire you like. But you know, if you uh, if you want if you like pushback show a lot, and then I would say support it via Patreon. And if you like my writing, then there's Substack. But, and of course you don't have to pay for any of it because everything, there's no paywall really for anything I do. Sometimes with pushback, there's a little bit of bonus content for Patreons and Substack maybe occasionally, but almost everything I do, I, I make available to everybody. So, um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. It does. Thanks, Aaron. Oh, and just one yeah. last thing. I did want to um, say, uh, Thank you for acknowledging that uh, the Biden administration has been uh, a complete uh, failure on Yemen, among other uh, foreign conflicts. And, uh, you know, it takes a, a, a good man to acknowledge when they've been wrong. I know I know Jimmy pushes back on you a lot about uh, your past uh, support for uh, between, you know, for, say, the 2020 election, for example. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you. Thank you. Nick. And Jimmy pushes back and he makes fun of he mocks and, uh, you know. Uh, but that's fair enough. I mean, uh, and he's pretty funny with it, so I can't be too mad at him. Uh, Tim, listen, I know you're waiting back in line. I have to apologize to you. I have to go. 
and we've been doing this for nearly two hours, which is more time than I had. So I'm going to have to end the room here. But when I do this next, please come back and, and we can pick up where we left off. So and I'm sorry that we can't get back to you today. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This was great. I hope even more people call in next time because I love this part of the show, how I can inter interact with people. It's my only opportunity really to do it. And it's it's always really fun and constructive. So I hope you'll come back and and call in. And I hope you have a great weekend and uh, talk to you soon. Bye, everybody.